Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Accountable care organizations are incentivized to reduce spending and improve quality of care. One way they have tried to achieve these goals is by establishing control over a patient's full continuum of care by minimizing the care patients receive from other providers outside of the ACO, including specialists. Doctors Michael Barnett and J. Michael McWilliams have a paper in the May issue of the American Journal of Managed Care on leakage of specialty care among ACOs and the changes in specialty care leakage and use associated with the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Dr. Barnett is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. McWilliams is the Warren Alpert Foundation Professor of Healthcare Policy and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. They are both internists at Brigham and Women's Hospital. What have been the findings about how successfully ACOs have reduced spending and improved performance on quality measures? Uh, this is Michael McWilliams um, speaking. So that has been a, a, a pretty big question. It may take a little while for me to um, convey an answer to that because there's been a lot written. There have been a lot of analyses. There have been a lot of conflicting reports, uh, and, and therefore this sort of question about whether ACOs have saved and how much they've saved has been um, debated a lot. So in sifting through all of that, I think it's it's important for us to keep in mind what constitutes evidence. What we try to do in our approach to estimating the impact of um, the Medicare Shared Savings Program um, is to use a quasi-experimental design where we have a control group of local patients assigned to uh, or served by non-ACO providers and use how their spending trends and quality trends uh, evolve over time to establish what we would refer to as a counterfactual. So that's the um, amount of spending or the quality performance for ACOs if they weren't ACOs, if they weren't participating, if they weren't trying to do anything to lower spending or improve quality. Um, So I think it's really important to pay probably more attention to evaluations that attempt to try to establish a counterfactual because a lot of the reports and commentaries have been based on analyses of ACO spending relative to the financial benchmarks, which CMS sets. Uh, And those benchmarks are not valid counterfactuals. And in fact, they're not really designed to be valid counterfactuals. They're just designed to set the incentives in the program. Um, So while analyses of those data suggest that the program has probably um, caused a loss, a net loss to Medicare. Um, what our group has found, and I think what other researchers have found as well in, in using more rigorous evaluations, is that um, ACOs have generated, have, have achieved spending reductions. They are modest, but I think they're meaningful. And notably, they've been growing over time. So as ACOs participate in the program for longer periods, the, the savings grow. Um, which suggests learning effects um, evolving sort of stronger behavioral responses. Um, and they do constitute net savings to Medicare, so it's after subtracting out the bonus payments that Medicare pays to the ACOs. Similarly, there's been a lot of reports on how quality has improved because of what ACOs are doing, but that's really just based on the performance data that CMS um, publishes uh, reports without using a control group. And so in our approach, when we use a control group, we actually find very little effects on quality. There have been 
some some pretty meaningful improvements in patient experience in terms of lambda-based outcomes, readmissions for ambulatory care-sensitive conditions. Those outcomes really have not been affected much by um, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, so not, not much by ACOs. And then when we dig into the savings and, and sort of ask what's driving the savings, um, the pattern is really not that consistent with this narrative that I think many adhere to, uh, which is that care coordination, high-risk care management is, is sort of the primary driver of savings and, and sort of the, um, the main mechanism by which ACOs can, can lower spending. Um, so we don't find, for example, that savings are clearly concentrated among high-risk patients. As I just said, we don't really find reductions in readmissions or so-called preventable admissions. And in fact, in some cases, we see slight increases. Um, and that's actually not that surprising uh, because a lot of, or, or sort of the premise of a lot of these care management, care coordination efforts are to reach out to patients, fill gaps in care, correct underuse, and all of that actually tends to increase utilization rather than decrease it. Um, and so the savings that we have seen seem to be more due to at least some ACOs trying to limit overuse more directly. So, for example, we see bigger reductions in spending on post-acute care, which we know is a major source of wasteful spending in Medicare. Also, reductions in home health care that's initiated on an outpatient basis, which we think there's probably excessive use there as well. And then also some evidence of ACOs steering their patients away from the very high-priced health systems, the sort of hospital-owned facilities, uh, to the independent office setting where uh, Medicare pays a much, much lower price. So achieving savings uh, in that way. Um, and then sort of the final lesson that we've learned, and this is very relevant to the paper, uh, the, the study that Michael and I, uh, Michael Barnett and I conducted, is that the, the pattern of savings seems to follow the strength of incentives in a variety of ways. And one of the key ways um, how the incentives vary in the program is by organizational structure. I think a lot of times we think of ACO contracts as this sort of monolithic thing where the incentives are the same for all the organization because the terms of the contract are the same. But when it's applied to, to very different types of organizations, you get very dramatically different uh, incentives. Um, and in particular, ACOs have much weaker incentives to lower spending for care that they provide. And uh, the reason for that, so they have much stronger incentives to lower spending for care that other providers provide. Um, and the reason for that is that um, if an ACO reduces spending on something that they uh, uh, provide, any shared savings bonus from that is going to be at least partially offset by the lost fee-for-service profits they would get by providing uh, the service. And so the smaller ACOs that, um, that actually provide a narrower part of the spectrum of care have stronger incentives to reduce spending than the bigger health systems. Um, and another reason for that is the bigger health systems provide a lot of inpatient specialty care to a lot of other uh, providers' patients, so other ACOs' patients, for example. Um, and so if they rolled out systematic strategies to lower spending across the board, that would spill over onto a lot of the, the, the sources of specialty care and inpatient revenue that they have, and, and that would constitute pretty major losses. Um, and so that that distinction is something that, that becomes quite important, motivating the way that we conducted our study on specialty care. So sorry for the long response, but there's been a lot going on, and I think it's, it's sort of important to lay out this, this sort of debate that's been going on. Yeah, that's a good summary because there have been conflicting reports about whether or not they are saving money if they 
are actually improving quality. Um, obviously, there's organizations like the National Association of ACOs, which feel very strongly that ACOs are saving money. So your paper focuses on ACO leakage, which is when patients receive care from providers outside of the ACO. What are ACOs trying to accomplish by reducing that leakage and specifically controlling specialty referrals? So this is Michael Barnett. Um, I'll take this question. So uh, this is a great question because I find that often in seeing the rhetoric promoted by um, consulting companies, delivery systems, uh, just sort of out there on social media, um, often leakage is viewed as just something that is inherent good to try to fix without really questioning exactly why that is necessarily. Um, I think what this comes down to, uh, particularly for ACOs in the Medicare program, is that Medicare patients are basically free to see whichever providers they want. They really have a national provider network. And so, um, but for the ACO program, Medicare patients still need to be attributed to a health system, which may or may not be something that a Medicare patient is really all that aware of or feel like they have any particular loyalty um, to an ACO. And so it's really pretty frictionless for a Medicare patient to see whichever provider they want and to remain loyal to an ACO or not. There's really no barrier there. And I think the most commonly um, expressed refrain um, or you know, the rhetoric around why reducing leakage could actually potentially maybe you know, benefit population health or help kind of the spirit behind the ACO framework of improving quality and reducing cost is that in large multi-specialty ACOs, for instance, like a large healthcare delivery system with a wide range of specialists as well as a primary care population, if all of their ACO patients are seeing the specialists in the healthcare system and receiving primary care and other forms of care in that health system, then an ACO actually has more control over the whole spectrum of care those patients are receiving. That actually, you know, their specialists and their PCPs are aligned with ACO quality improvement and cost reduction efforts. And so with less leakage, the ACO incentive is sort of spread across the patient population most effectively, theoretically. But I think another less altruistic goal, which is I think probably more important and much more realistic, is that um, if ACOs, if ACO patients get care outside the ACO from a specialist, then they lose that revenue, right? They just simply lose fee-for-service revenue. Um, and so, you know, it's consistent with the findings in our study that actually we find that um, the ACOs that have higher proportions of specialists actually have the least uh, movement in actually reducing overall specialist visits, particularly new specialty visits, um, because, um, you know, our interpretation is that you know, the ACO incentive is too weak for them to overcome their very strong incentive to capture as much fee-for-service revenue as possible. And in your research, what specifically were, were you analyzing to determine how patterns of specialty care use were changing within Medicare ACOs? So this is Michael Barnett again. Another good question. So um, sometimes um, it can be pretty easy to um, get very disoriented in trying to analyze this stuff because um, they're very... Um, you know, there are a lot of ways to get confused about thinking new versus old specialty visits and inside versus outside ACO. So let me try to just present it very simply um, without getting um, too much into the weeds. Basically, we assigned patients to an ACO and we also assigned providers to an ACO based on where the majority of their care was received or delivered. And then we, you know, given that everyone's assigned to an ACO or not, we look at patients and say, how much care did you get from specialists within an ACO versus outside the ACO? 
Um, and leakage is really just the fraction of care that you get um, outside of the ACO. So in our paper, we find um, that you know leakage uh, leakage rates are really quite high, actually. So you know the majority you know the majority of care that patients are receiving is large uh, specialty care is um, happening outside of ACOs. In fact, um, another nuance that we looked at is we were also very interested in examining um, established versus new specialty visits. Our intuition there is that when the when a when a health system signs an ACO contract they probably are not going to be very excited about disrupting existing specialist relationships, right? That's very disruptive to patients, tends to be very upsetting if a health system says, well, we don't want you to see the specialist that you know um, anymore. And we felt that ACOs, if they were going to focus on this, might actually focus most on new specialist referrals and trying to direct them within the organization or maybe just reduce them altogether. And so we clearly differentiated between new specialist visits versus the majority of specialty care that happens, which is actually, um, uh, you know, established follow-up specialty visits. So you you mentioned that they were focused. They focus usually on new specialist visits. Um, what have ACOs been trying to do to prevent that leakage successfully? Like, what are the tactics that they're using? to do this and have they tried unsuccessful tactics that might be the telling people not to go to a specialist they've been going to. Great. So this is Michael Barnett. Um, one more time. I would love to be able to answer this question like very confidently with empirical data. Um, it turns out that, you know, despite how prominent the concept of leakage is in uh, kind of the healthcare consulting industry and um, in delivery system rhetoric, there's virtually no published research on this topic or the concept of the effectiveness of steering specialty referrals one way or another, um, though it's also very common in sort of the utilization management world. Despite this, though, um, I can talk about a few frequently used tactics. Also, uh, Dr. McWilliams may have a couple things to add as well. Um, the things that I've encountered in my work um, examining specialty care delivery, one is um, using uh, technologies to try to make specialty referrals within your organization much easier. So if you can make referring to specialists within your own organization like as convenient as possible, then you know time crunched PCPs will often just you know default to whatever takes the least amount of time. And so that's one tactic that organizations take. Um, another one, which is an area that I uh, do a decent amount of research on, is using electronic consultations or e-consults um, as a way of building loyalty among your PCPs. So the idea here is you create kind of an alternate system for PCPs to be able to query specialists about whether or not, you know, just how to solve some specialty problem that's come up. And it's kind of a formalized, you know, email consult, basically. Um, that's one strategy that folks have, ta have taken. Um, there's also a wealth of kind of enterprise software, quote-unquote, predictive analytics solutions out there um, that are um, sold to delivery systems and ACOs to basically chomp up their claims data or whatever internal data ACOs have and help identify um, strategies to decrease leakage. These are the ones which, to me, are the biggest black box because it's mo mostly just marketing rhetoric and, and hype. Um, and it's really unclear whether or not those work or if they help ACOs achieve their goals. And what does leakage tell us about the success of an ACO? Have we seen correlation between how well they handle that and how successful they are? 
Right. So, uh, Michael McWilliams, I think if you had asked most people at the outset of the ACO programs, most people would have said we should see that correlation, that the ACOs that are the best at containing leakage would be the most successful. That doesn't, first of all, it doesn't really seem to be the case. And if you think about leakage and what it really is, it's not inherently good or bad. So if an ACO is leaking care to providers that are higher quality than it is or more efficient than it is, uh, that's good for patients and good for society. And in some cases could be good for the ACO. And in our study, we uh, sort of had this finding of the smaller primary care oriented ACOs as uh, curbing um, new referrals to specialists the most. They leak everything. So here we have the ACOs that, by definition, leak 100% of their specialty care. They're the ones that are uh, driving uh, new specialty referrals down. Um, and I think this the, this sort of a obsession with leakage uh, stems from the notion, as as Michael was alluding to, that an organization needs to provide care in order to coordinate it. But if you think about about that for a minute, you know, is, is there really a strong reason why we can't figure out how to coordinate care across organizational boundaries? I, that just does not strike me as, it, at least, as, as sort of putting a man on the moon. Uh, that, that seems to be a, a very feasible goal. Um, and then I think the other misstep in the thinking in connecting leakage to success has been um, that care coordination is the key to um, to savings. And although coordinated care is, is really important and we need to do a much better job at it, it's not likely to be the primary driver of, of savings uh, in these new payment models. Certainly from an incentives perspective, I think we can say that uh, leakage um, is highly predictive. Uh, the, the less the leakage, the weaker the incentives for an ACO to reduce spending. And we're seeing that play out in the evidence over and over again. Um, and I think also, you know, there are a lot of slogans in healthcare, and I think th this is one, uh, it's sort of a good example. And I think we, we do have to question some of the sincerity of the arguments put forth by various stakeholders. Um, so in this case, for example, large provider organiza organizations saying that they are trying to reduce leakage in order to coordinate care. Um, many of these big health systems charge very high prices in commercial markets. And they also get paid more by Medicare because they have more uh, of the hospital loan outpatient facilities. Um, so as I mentioned before, one strategy by other ACOs in, um, in, in markets uh, with those big health systems is to steer their patients away from those high-priced entities uh, to achieve savings. And so that, that poses a real threat uh, to some of these dominant providers. Um, so as Michael noted, um, these efforts to reduce leakage may not be as much to coordinate care as they may be sort of defensive positioning or a defensive strategy um, as those forces threaten to erode um, uh, specialty referrals. Uh, so the way to shore up those referrals. And then were there any findings from the research that particularly surprised you that you weren't really expecting? So this is Michael Barnett here. Um, yeah, there were, there were a few things that I found pretty surprising. You know, going into this, I guess I I had a prior I had a prior belief that um, some of the early evidence that um, uh, particularly Michael McWilliams and others have generated was that there was a lot of churn in ACOs in terms of um, how stable patients were in staying within one ACO one year to the next, and that um, um, I also also his his prior research also showed that um, there was a lot of leakage actually of all all types of care outside of ACOs. Um, I had felt that, you know, 
it's not hard for ACOs to actually recognize this in their own data analytics and that they'd want to actually take measures to make an impact on that. So that, you know, if nothing else, there might just be an overall trend towards reduced leakage and increased concentration of care being provided within their own organization. With the idea, like, um, you know, Dr. McWilliams had just said, actually, you can't coordinate care that you don't provide, or at least that's kind of the common wisdom, whether or not it really should be accepted. Um, so I was really surprised that basically we found no movement on leakage at all. You know, in terms of looking at the absolute levels, they were, you know, really quite high and a little bit staggering. But I was, I was hoping that we would see at least some movement indicating this is something that's actually feasible for ACOs to impact or that it's something they actually might care about. Um, another, um, another finding that actually was pretty surprising to me is we didn't see any change in the stability of patient assignment over time or rather the lack of stability, we basically found that around a quarter of an ACO's patient um, left, you know, churned in and out of the organization from one year to the next, and that didn't really change at all. To me, that might be even more surprising than actually the stability of leakage because, you know, retaining those ACO patients are presumably one mechanism whereby um, ACOs can actually recoup cost savings by investing more in their care and trying to build stronger relationships. So I think this is another, this kind of harkens back to Dr. McWilliams' arguments about, you know, kind of questioning the rhetoric around care coordination and how are ACOs generating savings in reality versus how we think about them ideally generating savings. Dr. McWilliams, did you have any surprises? I may have been a little less surprised than, than Michael was um, <laughs> on some of these uh, findings. I mean, I think... Um, you know, with the exception of the very, very large ACOs, a lot of these ACOs, just by definition, are, are going to leak a lot of uh, care. Um, and also, you know, while we didn't find uh, much change in the amount of leakage, uh, the fact that it didn't change may be considered success by many of these ACOs to the extent that they were trying to prevent more hemorrhaging of referrals. Um, so even though there was no net effect, it, it may be that the, the efforts by many ACOs to sort of corral uh, those referrals and steer them internally um, worked uh, to the extent that they offset um, uh, sort of uh, efforts by other organizations to take their move their patients away from those organizations. Uh, great. And then I know we're running out of time. So just real fast, our last question was, um, what changes do you think are needed, if any, as a result of the findings of this paper? Are there some next steps to take this research going forward? Sure. I, I mean, that's a probably the most important question, right? Uh, this is Michael McWilliams. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not sure if there are any very specific regulatory um, implications that fall out of this paper, but I, I do hope that our findings help to change the conversation, which I think is, is really important because the, I think the, the conversation just really ran off the rails at some point when we started talking about coordinating our way out of the cost problem. Um, we've been ta- talking way too much about magical solutions like containing leakage, and I think way too little about uh, ways to address wasteful care head-on. Um, we've, we've been doing a pretty good job of avoiding the really hard questions like how do we get physicians to do less, or how do we break up monopolies, how do we make markets uh, more competitive. So i really like to hear organizational leaders and consulting firms talk less about population health management, for example, as if it's some um, cost-saving enterprise, 
and talk more about things like retraining physicians, reprogramming them so that they make more cost-effective decisions, reconfiguring capacity uh, to reduce low-value care, uh, coming up with more efficient delivery models, fostering more price competition. So, I, you know, hopefully this is just you know, it's just one paper, obviously, but hopefully it can um, help steer the conversation in that direction. And then I think, you know, one of our key findings, how the, the smaller primary care oriented ACOs were really the most responsive uh, in terms of um, reducing specialty, new specialty referrals. You know, I think we've been listening way too much to the large health systems um, whose incentives are really just to maintain the status quo. We tend to put these organizations on a pedestal, exalt them as hotbeds of innovation when the evidence really suggests otherwise, that all we've gotten out of consolidation has been higher prices without ostensibly better um, quality. So I think if, we, if we're looking for something to build on, certainly this paper, as well as other evidence, I think would suggest that we should be paying more attention to the smaller medical groups, because um, those are the ones who have much stronger incentives to innovate. So I think in general, uh, our paper is, is another example of how we, we need more evidence, um, fewer slogans in healthcare. And Dr. Barnett, did you have any final words? Yeah, um, you know, just, just to add one small thing off of what Dr. McWilliams was saying, you know, I think like, like he said, you know, leakage is a distraction from like the real, from the actual hard work that um, ACOs need to be doing. Um, as someone who thinks a lot about specialty care delivery, I'd say also that you know, in thinking of specialty care delivery as a um, function of a health system um, that ACOs need to consider, the, the really hard work that would need to be done is thinking about referral appropriateness. And when do patients need to see a specialist? And what's the highest value, um, what are the highest value scenarios for people to establish a relationship with a specialist with all the downstream spending that actually um, implies? And that's a hard question, right? There's no claims algorithm that can easily answer that. And so, like Michael uh, McWilliams, I, I think, you know, moving, moving past this question is the only way we think of specialty care would really be a benefit to the field. Great. Thank you both for your time today. Thanks so much, Laura. All right. 